Scripture reading this evening is from Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everything else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some priests preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfless ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. This is the word of God. If you're just joining us tonight, we've been on a journey through Philippians, and we're moving into this, which I think is a really, really important section. Um, This is a letter that Paul has written to the church in Philippi. And at this point, when he's writing this letter, Paul is a prison, he's an enemy of the state, because he goes around and tells people on the streets of the empire that Jesus is curious, which means Jesus is Lord, which if you've been with us, you learn that that statement carries a lot of weight because you are required as a citizen of Rome. Remember, the Philippians are living in Philippi, which was a colony of Rome. Okay? And so in order to be a part of that colony, they would have to say that Caesar is indeed Lord. This lands Paul in jail. And at this point, Paul's friends are worried. Um, it, his friends in Philippi are worried about Paul. Is he okay? Is he in good spirits? Is he even alive for that matter? And so the Philippians send Euaphroditus. I may have got that wrong. Um, but they send this guy to go 800 miles. Okay, when I read this in one of my study Bibles, I thought that can't be right. And I Googled it. From Philippi to Rome, it's 799 miles. Okay, that's a long journey to not have a car or a train, or a plane. Okay, so it's a long way to get there. So imagine this guy traveling not just all the way there, but having to go then all the way back foot or by whatever animal he was able to ride on. He shows up with cash, okay, to help Paul, uh, food and water and clothes, and he's able to really help him in a time of need. And you can bet there were questions like, Paul, how are you? Are you doing okay? And Paul says, yeah, I'm okay. Here, take this letter back to the Philippians. And I want to thank you again for for basically saving my life. In fact, Paul actually says, what has happened to me, all these things that I went through actually went to serve the gospel. Which sparks the question, first of all, what did actually happen to Paul? Okay, so if you brought your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. If not, I'll have it on the screen here. You can read there as well. Um, But if you turn to 1 Corinthians um, Joseph, if you would bring up that, uh, that passage for me. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13. So this is a little describing what has happened to Paul. For it seems to me that God has put his apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in an arena. That's a pretty intense image. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. 
to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. Then we are cursed. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. There's actually a, a church in, in Denver, Colorado called Scum of the Earth. That is a provocative church title. Um, they get it from this passage. I mean, literally, the garbage of the world is the language that Paul uses here. That doesn't sound like an easy life to me. Not at all. In fact, if we go turn to 2 Corinthians, there's, there's another descriptor. It says chapter 6, uh, verses 3 through 10. It says, we put no stumbling blocks in anyone's path, so our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In great endurance, and troubles, and hardships, and distresses, and beatings, imprisonments, and riots. In hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, and purity, understanding, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. In truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not killed, sorrowful, sorrowful, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making me rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. If Paul wrote a self-help book, it would probably be called Your Worst Life Now because his description of life is not a pleasant read. And yet, the reason we get the title for this sermon series, Enjoy and Sorrow, is because this is what Paul does. He juxtaposes two different things with one another. We are, we are cursed, therefore we blessed. There is this interesting interplay that he does when he's writing this letter. Um, so with that understanding of what Paul's experience. Have that in the back of your mind now when we look back at our passage in Philippians. Because Paul says, you know, what has happened to me? All the troubles and hardships and distresses, and on top of that, Paul is in prison. He's beaten up. And you would think that after all of that, after being in prison not once but multiple times, getting to this point, you would think it's over, right? That he is, the gospel has been shut down, he's giving up, he's, he's laying down the towel, it's, it's all over, but the, actually the exact opposite happens. All of this happened to serve and advance the gospel. The word advance here is the Greek word prokope, which is a vivid word picture, um, to kind of describe it, think of um, the Roman army in a march and the engineers who are out in front of the army are paving a way for the army. So whether that's cutting down trees or making roads, essentially those out in front are making a way for the army to march through. And so Paul's saying after all of that, it served to advance and paved the way for the gospel to go forward. And Paul lays out two examples of that reality. First in 13, it says, as a result, Paul says it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for the king. Now, that phrase, um, the palace guard is putorium in the Greek, which meant a group of soldiers in Rome made up in nine cohorts or 9,000 men who were basically like Caesar's elite bodyguards. They weren't, um, don't think of it like um, prison guards, but like super high-powered soldiers in the empire. 
And Paul says, the whole palace, everyone knows I'm here, and I'm here for the king. When we think of these guards, these, these high-powered guards, um, are probably on like a four-hour rotation, okay? So when Paul's in chains, he's in a Roman prison, every few hours, a new guard will show up and cycles through the rotation. And I want you to, for a second, just to sort of imagine what the conversation might be like. Hey, Paul, I keep hearing about you. What are you in here for? Is it violence or murder or tax evasion? Are you leading an insurrection? I mean, what are you in here for? I've seen you around these places many times. Why are you back in prison? Paul says, actually, none of that. I believe that Jesus is king of the universe and not Caesar. You know, your whole empire army, Caesar's propaganda, uh, the slogan, Caesar is Lord, blah, 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 all those things, I don't buy any of it. I think it's a scam. I think the whole deal is nonsense. I think Nero, God bless him, I pray for him, pay my taxes, don't make any money really because I'm a tent maker, but I pay my taxes, and I think Nero is this power-hungry tyrant, and I think Jesus is the life-giving savior of the universe. In fact, I'm working on a letter right now to my friends in Philippi, and it's going to be epic. I think they're going to read it for at least a few months. And there's this part you'll want to hear uh, later. You want the, he's like, I want you to read this, because this is going to really, really blow your mind. And he says, um, therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, giving him the name above every name, Nero. That is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus, the King, is Lord. And in that moment, the guard goes, oh, I get it now. This is why you're in prison. That's dangerous. That's treason. If that gets out, that will be the end of the Roman Empire, which, by the way, happened. Um, he claims that Jesus is back from the dead and that Jesus appeared to hundreds of his followers. And, and not just Paul, there's this whole movement of Paul's disciples, Jesus, all over the place and all over the empire, and it's crazy. It all started with Jews in Jerusalem, and that made sense, but now it's all over, and now there's Gentiles involved? Like, what is this? There are men and women, rich and poor, and slaves? Like, all, all this, this is crazy. And they all believe that Jesus was Lord. And now nobody will worship Caesar. Nobody will make sacrifices to the God. And everybody says, Jesus is Lord. And the problem is, Caesar doesn't know how to stomp this movement out. He's tried, but the problem is, he can't stomp the movement out because they won't fight back. They don't take up arms. So we don't even know how to react to this. They think you should love your enemies, which seems very upside down. Do you hear about this guy, Jesus, said something like that? Now, the point here is that the empire's agenda was to shut Paul up, okay? Because Paul was causing a ruckus. And they did not want this to continue to happen, hence why he's in prison. But the problem was, that didn't work. In fact, it did much worse uh, for them in the end. The exact opposite of what they wanted to happen, happened. And Paul says everybody, there's that, that word when he says 9,000, everybody knows that the word is out. And we don't know for sure that Paul was in Rome, but most scholars agree that it's most likely that he was in Rome at this time which puts Philippians at around 61 or 62 AD. Um, and Rome in the early 60s was a dangerous place. It was volatile. Um, it was right about when uh, Caesar Nero was in power. 
and also about the time he started to go mentally insane, if you know anything about history. And so a few years later, Nero sets fire to the city of Rome, right? Things go ablaze. In the aftermath, the church is blamed for this. And in doing so, it unleashed this entire incredible persecution of followers of Jesus who died by the millions for the sake of the gospel, which if you're with us in Revelation, you're hearing, you've been hearing all about that part of the early church. Paul is doing all of this, knowing full well what it means for him. He knows he's giving up everything, probably his life. I actually think it's kind of inspiring. I was thinking of what's an example of this. I, I think of Olympians, okay? I always love watching the Olympics. It always blows my mind because you see these people do these incredible feats. What you don't see is the years and years and years of training that goes in before they compete in their, you know, one or two hours of fame. And I was looking up, because I remember this was being just kind of humorous. I looked up um, back when Michael Phelps was on top of the world as the fastest swimmer in the world. I looked up his diet. Get a load of this. For breakfast, he ate three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, tomatoes, lettuce, fried onions, and mayonnaise. Sounds kind of good. Three chocolate chip pancakes. And then after the sandwiches and pancakes, it was time for the five egg omelet, three sugar-coated slices of French toast, a bowl of grits, and two cups of coffee. I don't know about that. If I ate that, I would just collapse in a coma. I could not do that. That's a lot of food. For lunch, he would have half kilogram of pasta. I'm not good with the metric system. I think that's like two pounds or something. I don't really know. He would eat two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread smothered with mayo and another set of energy drinks. And dinner, he would add a pound of pasta with carbonara sauce, a large pizza to himself, and more energy drinks because he needs them at night to sleep. Phelps would train six hours a day or more 365 days a year, no days off. My point in sharing that is that's absolutely ridiculous, but also in order to be an Olympic athlete, you make a massive sacrifice. You give up everything in a sense. You give up a normal life. You give up a normal diet. You have to live in a very regimented, specific way. And I think it's really inspiring that people are able to do that and give their life to a cause like that. I think for people who saw Paul and read his letter, I think they were inspired in a similar way. Not for the Olympics, but for the fact that he was willing to give up everything. Who would have had a nice, cushy life as a rabbi, instead chose to give his life for the sake of the gospel. And I think people got inspired by the fact that he was willing to go to prison, the fact that he was willing to risk his life and die for the gospel. And at this point, the empire's goal was to put Paul up in front of everyone and make him an example and say, this is what happens. If you have the audacity to stand up against Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. And it didn't work. In fact, it backfired. Everybody goes, oh, the worst you can do is prison? Right? Bring it. Let's preach Christ. The worst you can do is death? That's not that bad because there's resurrection. There's life. Bring it. That's fine. Let's preach the gospel. In verse 8, it says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. So Paul uses this term a ton. Okay? So the text says that he rejoices. Um, 
the words joy and rejoice in, in, in this book in particular are actually the same word in the Greek. One's a noun and one's a verb. And we see this 16 times all throughout this book. It's, it's a common refrain. You see joy, 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 rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. This is the undercurrent that cuts across the entire book of Philippians. The man in prison says rejoice. Like I said last week, if you put me in a Roman prison, I'm depressed, I'm not sleeping, I'm miserable, I'm like tweeting how miserable I am and taking Instagram reels of my cell walls and how depressed I am. Not that they let me have a phone or that they had phones then, but you get the point, right? I'm like in a dark place. I'm having doubts. I'm angry with God. Like, I, I don't think I would do well. But Paul is iron. Like, he's a machine. You can't keep him down. He's in prison, and he's like, I have learned how to have joy even in this horrible situation. And every time he uses this word, and we're going to see this in the coming weeks, but every time he uses the words joy and rejoice, it's almost like a peek in the curtain to see how, our, how we can exist and live regardless of our circumstances and still find joy. Okay, so here's my thought to land the plane tonight. And let me preface, it's kind of a long thought. I got in trouble on Sunday because I said at the 9.30 service, I said, uh, in conclusion, and then I, I went on for another 10 minutes. And then said, in conclusion, a second time. So just warning, it's a kind of a longer thought, but not too long. Here we go. I want to talk a few minutes about what I'm calling redemption's blade. I was trying to think of a metaphor to sort of drive home this point. This passage is a prime example of what God does with evil. And by evil, I mean Paul being put in prison. That is evil. Okay, um, be- The beatings he experienced, ultimately his death. The odds are, if you live in America, that's not your story, but we still experience evil. Whether you bump up against evil in um, cancer, divorce, unemployment, um, uh, mass shootings, racism, whatever it might be, we all bump against evil from time to time. And this is a prime example of what happens when God takes evil and cuts it with redemption. This is the metaphor of the blade. When God cuts evil and digs out the good in the midst of it. Because this is what God does. And let me be very clear on this, because this is where the nuance is really important. Okay, God does not cause evil. I'm not saying in this that evil is God's will. Because I believe Paul's incarceration was evil. I think Jews being in Nazi, uh, Nazi concentration camps is evil. I don't think that's God's will. I think mass shootings are evil. I don't believe that's God's will. And a reformed view of God's will is often deeply misunderstood to mean whatever happens was God's will. If it happens, that means, yes, that's what God willed for the world. Very wrong understanding of God's will. I think Calvin would be rolling in his grave. Okay? This is not the way we, in theology, we think about um, God's will and what that actually means for us as a Christian. Now, that said, in a strange way, God is at work in and through the reality of Paul being in prison. And so I find that when when followers of Jesus bump up against evil, that no matter who you are, some of them will have more of this experience than others, absolutely, but we all bump up against it at some point in our life, that typically followers of Jesus land on one of two sides of this. On the one side, people get angry and bitter at God. They shake their 
their fists to the heavens. They ask, why, God, why would you allow such evil to happen? Why would you allow such bad things to happen to innocent kids? Why would you allow such horrific things to happen in this world? And then doubt comes in, rips out faith. People turn away from God, away from the gospel, away from the church, and they walk away mad at God. Others will default to something different. They'll say things like, God is in control. I, I hear that all the time. And I'll admit, I've said that before. That's a, that's a phrase we hear often. And I understand the, the idea and heart behind it. Um, or or um, another one I've heard is that everything happens for a reason. Or it's all a part of God's plan. I hear these things all the time. And let me tell you why I struggle with them a little bit. I think both sides, whether you're angry at God or you say everything happens for a reason. Both, both of these things put the, the, the blame on God. The responsibility falls on the shoulders of God in situations. In my opinion, our lives, or the theological term is our, our providence, God's providence, is far more complex. And I think we do a disservice when we try to sort of trivialize someone's suffering. Um, let me give you a, a case study, and I think this will help explain where I'm going with this. Uh, I have a friend of mine who I, I spoke to a few months ago, um, got a new job, was really excited about it. Um, a few months before that, he had asked his uh, girlfriend to be his fiance, and they were going to get married, and she said yes. He was like cloud nine, doing awesome. He calls me two weeks later and told me that he got laid off. He only lasted a month at his job, and that was it. Now, maybe you're currently unemployed or you've experienced seasons of unemployment, but I, I, like, I totally get why that, that would mess people up. Like, we were made to work, to not have work, and to not know when your next job is coming, especially when you're about to get married and you, you need to be able to support um, your spouse in a marriage. Like, these are, these are the really, like, tough and difficult seasons. So let's take that example, okay? This is just one example of my life I could think of. Maybe that was God. Maybe that was God's will. Maybe that was all a part of God's plan. Maybe there was a purpose in all of that. Maybe there was a reason for that. Or maybe it was, there were demonic forces at work. Maybe Satan was behind it, or maybe it was because of sin, and it wasn't the spiritual thing, it was just simply a sinful reason led to this thing. Maybe my friend was a lousy employee, or maybe he was dishonest. I don't think so, because he's a good guy and uh, works hard, but it's possible. Maybe he was late for work. I don't know. Maybe it was because of a coworker's sin, and that there was manipulation that went on that led to him having to leave his position, and he was collateral damage. Or maybe it's that we live in a fallen world, and bad things happen to good people all the time. I don't know. Likely, it was probably a synthesis of all, all three things. I, I don't know, but I'm hesitant to say that it was all God's plan. But, either way, the tomb is empty. The gospel hope is not that everything ha that happens is the will of God, or the gospel hope is that no matter what happens to you, God is with you. He is at your side. When you bump up against evil, God is right there with you in your past. He was never far from you 
in your moment of abuse. He was never um, um, distant. He was torn and open with you. God, a suffering God who suffers with his people, who knows what suffering is like because he took on suffering himself in the flesh. He knows our pain. He sees us in our pain, and he is with us in our pain. God's a suffering God with a suffering people, and the tomb is empty. And so no matter what your path is, you follow a God who's able to bring good out of evil, who's able to absolutely wipe away and turn everything broken into God's cosmic purposes for redemption. And that's the gospel hope. I think of um, that line from uh, Romans. Many people quote it, oftentimes for like sports. Um, It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those. And then we usually sometimes they cut that part off, right? And don't finish the rest of the verse. Um, But what Paul actually says, if you read the whole verse, is we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Meaning, those who love God, okay, um, are those who are called according to his purpose, who wake up every day and say, God, here's my life, my brokenness, my pain, my suffering, my dreams, my past, my future. I am giving you this on your shoulders because you can carry it. Not my will, but your will be done. And so those who follow Jesus day in and day out, yes, God is going to work things for your good. The evil in your life, redemption's blade can slice in and there can be good that is found in the midst of the wreckage. The evil in your life, the mistakes in your past were not God's will. Our sins against others were not God's will for your life. That was outside of God's moral will for your life. But even in the midst of your mistakes, God can do something beautiful. He's able to take you and me in the aftermath of chaos and violence in the broken world to reach in and rescue. Now, It's not somehow trying to imagine that evil is good. That's more like Buddhism, right? That's not the gospel. Paul was all about the gospel because Paul was all about Jesus. Paul's life was swallowed up in Jesus. And so when he asked Paul, how are you? He says, oh, the gospel's doing great, which is funny, right? If someone asks how I'm doing, I'm like, oh, the gospel's doing great. It's a really interesting response because Paul's life was bigger than himself. He doesn't sound like a victim, but rather... He's playing an active role in this redemption. Okay, so here's, here's, let me give you an example of this. I have a friend um, who at a young age, his father abandoned him. Left out the door, um, that type of deal. He watched the whole thing happen. It was very traumatic. And a few years later, a father figure came into his life. And this father figure became a mentor, became like a, a second, a, a different father who was going to uh, mentor him and help him and sort of be a, a dad that's not his dad. And everything was good. This guy was a pastor. The mentor was a pastor at a church. Things were on the up and up. And then one day he found out that his mom was having an affair with this pastor. What do you think that does to a young person? To grow up without a dad, to have somebody step in the gap to, to, to care for you and to love you, and then to betray you at some point by being morally flawed. 
I think we've all maybe experienced this to some degree where someone we respected or loved or someone in the faith whom we revered, it turns out, has, had done some morally bankrupt things and their ministry and life came crashing down. That's a, that's a heart-wrenching and hard thing to wrestle with. My friend, uh, when this happened, was about 12 or 13 at the time, and somehow, through the grace and mercy of God, I mean, it tears me up now when I like, think about my conversation with him, but the beauty is that my friend does not blame God for any of this. He doesn't say, I know there was a reason for this. In fact, he says, no, that was just, that was just sin. Like, that was just bad. Um, he doesn't say there was a purpose for his mom's affair. He said that was evil, that was sin, that's brokenness, that's wrong, and did not blame God for any of it. But here's the other part. He didn't just sit around and wait for redemption. No, he joined and was proactive, not passive, but active in seeking out that redemption. He actually took an active role and speaks at conferences on fatherhood and the need for fatherhood in America. Um, he has a blog that he writes where he talks about the, the fatherlessness epidemic in bigger cities and um, has taken basically his entire life to share the gospel through the means of fatherhood. And it's a really powerful thing. This is a story of where redemption's blade broke into an evil situation and God used brokenness and somehow created something beautiful. I think about my own story, and some of you who know me know more of this story, and if you want to hear more of it, you're always welcome to ask me. Um, but in my own story, I went through a season of, of, of depression. It was a really, really hard season for my wife, my kids were so young at the time, um, they, they didn't really know what was going on, but I, I definitely wasn't myself. And depression is a, is a tricky one um, because it is evil. It's a kind of evil. But it's so difficult to describe depression to someone who's never been there because it's not sadness. The truth is, human beings can survive anything in this life as long as they can see like, what's on the other side. If you're swimming and swimming towards a, a certain shoreline, if you can see the shoreline, usually humans can power through and make it. But the thing about depression is it's almost like this huge fog. And so you can't see the other side. And when you can't see the other side, it's a, it's a really dark place to be. I remember wanting to talk about it, like wanting to scream or yell or shout about it, but like all I could do was whisper to my wife, I'm fine. I would say, I'm fine. I'm fine. We'll get through this. I'm fine. But I didn't want to get out of the bed in the morning. I was, I was really struggling. Um, this tied into um, a season when things shut down and we went into a lockdown and that only made things worse. And so I'm, I'm really, really struggling with my own mental health this season. But here's the thing. I can say with confidence today, as I stand before you, that God has healed me. And when I say that, I, I don't mean that one day I woke up and the depression was gone. Not at all. I mean, I went to a therapist. I saw a Christian counselor for, for many, many months. I um, talked to a spiritual formation director who gave me a lot of wisdom. I talked to Pastor Stan who gave me two weeks off of work to sort of heal and rest and recover. And by the mercy of Jesus, in time, like that fog lifted, and I was able to be healed of my depression. 
Now, when I look back on it, it's always easier in hindsight to see where God was working. Um, in the moment, I, I, I couldn't see anything. And all I could see was the fog. But in hindsight, I, I, don't, I don't look back and think God made me depressed. I don't think he caused that uh, on my life. Um, I actually think, however, what was true was that his presence in the midst of it was always there. That in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst when I, I didn't want to turn to anybody but my own selfish um, desire to be stuck in my own space and mental place where I was at, um, I remember in the midst of it um, knowing that, that God hadn't left me in this moment. And when I look back, I can see that. I can see the places where God was there, where he, he put people in my life to sort of wake me up out of this broken space. I believe that God took a blade, broke into the evil, and out of it something beautiful happened. Now, I share that with you because as a, a pastor, as someone who's, who's on the stage and preaching things, like I'm, I'm a human. And I have these experiences in life and, and moments where I know that uh, I'm so far away from where I want to be in times when, um, man, I, I don't have things all together. And the beautiful thing about being in a Christian community is that it is okay to not be okay, to have um, seasons of, of doubt, of struggle, of brokenness. What we don't want is to be a community that pretends. That when you're in a dark season, when you're in a, a space of brokenness, that we pretend that we've got our lives figured out. Because it is when we are vulnerable and honest about what is going on in our life, that's the moment when we invite both people to come around us and the Spirit to do real incredible redemptive work. And this is how Paul gets to this place where no matter what is happening to him, no matter if he is being uh, thrown in prison or he is beaten or he is poor and homeless, whatever he's experiencing, he can say, look, I have joy. And this joy is like a 24-7 joy, not connected to my circumstances. It's in something much deeper. And so, it's not about how much money you make, whether you're married or single, whether your marriage is going great or it's on the rocks, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you want to advance in your career but you feel stuck, whatever it is, the joy in your life doesn't come from those things, but it comes from the gospel of Jesus. If you can get there, I think you get the kind of joy that Paul talks about. So to wrap up in closing, um, I have underneath chairs, there's little note cards, this is a very youth pastory thing to do, um, but I have note cards and a pencil, so if you, if you want to grab that real quick, I'm going to invite Joseph and our, our worship team to come up. They're going to play just some music while we do this exercise, um, but I'm a, I'm a big practice person. I want to, to practice what we believe, and so as an exercise or a practice, I want you to write down three things on this card. I want you to think about your life, and I want you to think what's something that's happened to you that you could describe as evil. It could be a past experience, it could be a, an abuse, or it could be um, something unfortunate that happened in your life. It, it doesn't have to be a big thing either. It could be a, your car broke down, whatever it might be. But take a few minutes, maybe write a thing or two down of what that might be. And once you've written down those things underneath that, um, I want you to write how you believe God has um, used that evil for good, has stepped into that situation, and, then, and where the beauty in the midst of even those broken past evils, 
where beauty is to be found? How has God redeemed that broken situation? What has he taught you in the midst of it? What, what are the things that have come out of the ashes? And then lastly, Paul says to rejoice. And so write down one thing that you want to be grateful for this week going into next week. So three things. I'll say them real quick one more time. What is one thing that you can look back at your life and say, that, that was evil that happened? And secondly, where is redemption's blade? Where has God taken that situation and created beauty out of it? And lastly, rejoice. How can we be grateful? Take two minutes, um, think on this, reflect on it, and then we'll close and sing together.